I, I looked around to be sure that nobody had earphones who didn't normally wear earphones. Because <laughs> if I hear anybody go, yay, or boo, I'll know you're not listening to me, you're listening to the Astros. Let's take a minute and pray. Our Father and our God, we're thankful tonight that we share this time together. We're thankful that we have an opportunity to meet here, to open your word and to learn from it and to benefit by it. And that's uh, what we want, Father. We want to grow in our understanding, our knowledge, our discernment of what you want from us. But even more than that, we want to use what we know in the right way and truly benefit from those things that are given to us through your word. Forgive us when we fail you. We know that our lives are imperfect. We admit that. But we pray that we will develop more strength as we live, that we will be better servants, that we will live our lives in a way that will honor you. We're thankful for all members of this congregation. We pray your blessings on all of us in our individual needs. And particularly tonight, Father, we pray for those who may be struggling either with health or other issues in their lives. Help us to be comforters when we can and to accept comfort from others when needed. And now bless us as we think together, we pray through Jesus. Amen. We did not cover all the verses we were supposed to cover last week, and that's my fault. And unfortunately, in order for us to stay on schedule, we have even more to cover this week than we would have had, and that means all of chapter 8 of Mark and all of chapter 9. And we're going to try to move fairly quickly, but I'm a little bit pessimistic about my ability to get us through all of that. But I do want to tell you in advance that Whatever I don't get through this week, uh, I'm not going back next week, uh, principally because we have a lot still to cover. I want to get back on track, and particularly as we get closer to the end of the Lord's ministry and uh, his ultimate sacrifice for us. So if I don't cover something, you think about it. There are a couple of things that and I don't think I've mentioned this before, but I do want to mention it quickly. And that is a lot of times uh, it's not just what's said in the text. It's what's not said in the text. And so we need to think about those things that aren't fully stated in what we're reading. Now, when you're studying the, the Gospels, uh, the synoptics, as we, uh, we're, we're studying one of the synoptics, but you need to look at what Matthew and Luke say when they say the same event or talk about the same event that Mark is talking about. 
because invariably you will find either that Mark is going to say a little more than them or a little less than them. That is no contradiction. That's simply different eyewitnesses looking at the same event and reporting from their perspective through the guidance of the Holy Spirit. That's why we put all those things together and then we get the full picture. Okay, let's get started on chapter 8 and we start out with the, the, the compassion of Jesus as well as his power. And that's in verses 1 through 9 of chapter 8. Um, and and uh, the, the chapter begins by Mark informing us that this multitude now, always following Jesus, is very great and they don't have anything to eat. And so for the second time, as we saw in chapter 6, we will see now Jesus feeding a multitude of people. There are some differences in these two accounts. Some quibblers have said, well, this is just repeating the same thing. That can't be true because of the differences that are noted. And in fact, Jesus will, before we finish this lesson tonight, tell the disciples about two times he fed the multitude. Um, th this group had followed Jesus for three days, and now they are without food. It does not mean that they have not had food for three days. It means that they've run out of food. If they had anything with them, they don't have it now. It's gone. And, and Jesus, in verse 2, is compassionate. I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And then Jesus recognizes that something needs to be done to help them. If I send them away hungry to their own houses, they will faint on the way, for some of them have come from afar. Some of these people have traveled great distances to come and hear Jesus and to be uh, in his presence. The disciples ask a question. They answer him with a question. How can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? Let me ask you this, and, and we don't have a lot of time for discussion, but let me ask you this. What, what notable difference can you see from what they ask? For this time as compared to the last time. They were going to go away and evidently in a, in a more uh, conducive area to buy food, this has to be a wilderness area where food is not easily to be gotten. And so Jesus is saying, if I send them away, they can't just go get food. They're going to have to go all the way home. And, and, and by that time, they're going to faint along the way. So Jesus asked the disciples, how many loaves do you have? Uh, it, it, I, I would think, from that perspective, it must have been disappointing to Jesus for them to to say it that w the way that they said it. How are you going to get enough food to feed these people in the wilderness? The what happened the last time they needed food? Why don't they say, "Is there anything you would be willing to do for them, Lord?" So Jesus said, "How many loaves you have? Seven. Incidentally, uh, William Hendrickson, a commentator, 
and I think I mentioned this last week when we talked about chapter 6 or two weeks ago, that, that uh, the loaves are more like flat cakes, not, not like loaves of bread or barley loaves or whatever, but more like flat cakes that would be torn apart. How many of these do you have? Seven. So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves and gave thanks. I want you to notice this. Gave thanks for the loaves, broke them, and gave them to his disciples to set before them. Incidentally, what difference is there between the first time and this time about sitting on the ground? Green grass. This time just sit on the ground. There is no grass, evidently. They, had, they also had a few small fish, verse 7. Having blessed them, he said, Jesus evidently prayed for the bread and prayed for the fish. These would be probably small dried fish. They, they ate and were filled, and it's important to note that they were filled, and they took up seven large baskets of leftover fragments. They took seven or twelve littler baskets the first time. The, the Greek words are different. This, the first one indicates a small basket, a something that probably somebody would carry with them. One, one translator says hamper, the, the, the seven hampers. And incidentally, that word is used of Paul's escape in Acts 9 going down from a roof. So it was a basket big enough that a person could actually be lowered down a wall in it. Seven baskets of leftover fragments. And then Mark tells us those who had eaten were 4,000, and after he had fed them, he sent them away. And so uh, 4,000 people, incidentally, uh, Matthew notes that there were 4,000 men plus women and children. So Mark is just counting the men. Uh, Matthew is counting more than men. Verse 10, they got into a boat. He got into a boat with his disciples, came to the region of Dalmanutha. Um, this region of Dalmanutha, if you're using the ESV, you have the word Magadan, right? Magadan, uh, not Dalmanutha. Uh, the, uh, or Matthew actually uses the word Magadan. And uh, the... the King James, I mean, New King James in Matthew's account calls it Magdala, Magdala. And, and there were alternate names. Uh, researchers have said that Magdala was, or Magdanan, was a city, and Dalmanutha was a region around that city. So either one of them would have been correct. Mark says region of Dalmanutha. Immediately, verses 11 and 12, Jesus has to face critics. The Pharisees came out and began to dispute with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. But he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. The word that is used, they were seeking a sign, meant a miraculous act. They were seeking a miraculous act. And Mark tells us the reason they were doing that, they were trying to test him. They were trying, not trying to confirm that he really was who he claimed to be, but 
to, to make him fail, hopefully. And uh, it must have been painful for Jesus to hear them ask that question. Had he not done any signs? I mean, you got to show us a sign. you got to do something miraculous. Some people think, and, and this is worth considering, some people think that what they're really intimating is this. Moses gave us bread from heaven, and it was lasting for many, many days. You've just taken physical bread and changed it. Now give us bread from heaven. Give us a sign from heaven. Well, whether there's any merit in that or not, um, Jesus is disturbed by their attitude. Why does this generation, this group, seek a sign, a miraculous act? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. Matthew's account, chapter 16, gives some additional details. And what is one of those additional details? No sign. Jesus doesn't say no sign. Incidentally, Mark's focus seems to be on no sign like you're demanding. I will give you no sign like you're demanding of me. But Jesus in Matthew 16 says, you're going to see a sign, but it's going to be too late. And what's that sign? Sign of Jonah. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so the Son of Man will be also. And so they're going to see that sign. They're going to see a miraculous act. Jesus resurrected from the dead, but it's going to be too late then. They're looking for something now. Jesus is saying when it comes, it'll be too late. In verse 13, there's more travel. And if you've been listening to me in the last few weeks, you notice that I've been telling you, Jesus did a lot of traveling back and forth across the Sea of Galilee and, and into different areas. He left them and getting into the boat again, departed to the other side. Now, the disciples are going to disappoint Jesus again. <laughs> because verse 14 said they had forgotten to take bread. And they had and and did not have more than one loaf with them in the boat. <laughs> Think about this for a moment. What had just happened back in verse eight? Seven large baskets of leftovers, and what did they take with them? One loaf of bread. He charged them saying. Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, and then this is exclusive to Mark, and the leaven of Herod. The leaven of the Pharisees, the leaven of Herod. <laughs> They're thinking on this level, not this level. They reason among themselves saying, it is because we have no bread. That's not at all what he meant. But Jesus, being aware of it, knowing what they were thinking, said to them, Why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? I would say he got on them, right? 
He got on them. When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of fragments did you take up? They said to him, 12. And also, when I broke the, se when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said, seven. So he said to them, how is it you do not understand? Well, first of all, Jesus is not talking about bread. I'm not talking about bread. When he warns about the leaven, he's talking about what, in a figurative way, what leaven does literally, causes bread to rise. When you talk about leaven in a figurative way, you're talking about a permeating influence. Beware of the influence of, the, uh, of these Pharisees, of the Sadducees. Be aware of that. Why? Because they weren't trusting. They weren't trusting. Uh, Jesus had done signs. They said, hey, give us a sign. They, they didn't trust Jesus. And had he done a sign, they still wouldn't have believed him. They get all the way to the cross. If you come down from the cross, then we'll believe. No. That's not how faith works. You don't, you don't test God. You accept what God says if you really are a believer. And they weren't. Leaven of Pharisees. But he also talks about the leaven of Herod. The leaven of Herod. And there may be some debate about that. Some think that he's talking about the fact that Herod, as the ruler, was actually the prop behind the Sadducees who always held the priesthood. And, and I mean, the, the high priest position. And so Herod was the prop. And, and you know about the Sadducees. They weren't very spiritual people. They, they were fairly secular in many ways. Some think that he's talking about Herod's political approach. Beware of the influence of Herod thinking that everything is to be decided politically. Maybe a good lesson for us as well. Uh, don't you understand? Don't you understand? Now, verse 22, he comes to Bethsaida. And, and when he comes to Bethsaida, they bring a blind man to him and they beg Jesus to touch him. This is a, uh, I think this is, incidentally, this is only found in Mark, this miracle. But it's been perplexing to some. Jesus takes the blind man by the hand. Remember, he can't see. And he leads him out of town. Doesn't want to do this publicly. When he had spit on his eyes, and I think what that means is spit on his fingers and then touched his eyes. He didn't spit on his eyes, I don't think. He put his hands on him. And then he asked the man if he saw anything. He said, I see men like trees walking. And he put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up, and he was restored and saw everything clearly. Then he sent him away to his house, saying, Neither go into town, nor tell anyone in the town. 
Some have taken that and have said, oh, wow, there is a failure on the part of Jesus to heal somebody. Well, first of all, he didn't fail. He did heal him. Secondly, you can't think, unless you're just an out-and-out skeptic, that Jesus couldn't give sight to a man if he could raise somebody from the dead. And that all of his other miracles showed his power. So this is not a lack of power. Now, we don't understand it, I don't think. We don't understand why the man didn't see clearly at first. Some might say, well, he didn't have enough faith. I don't know if that's the case. I don't know that we can know for sure everything about it. We just know that that's the way it's recorded. Mark is very honest about how it takes place. And incidentally, that is a very great tribute to inspired writers. Mark could have said Jesus simply spoke to him and he saw. Mark goes through the process exactly like it occurred. But, but, but he doesn't want the man to be his publicist. And, and some keep wondering, well, Jesus keeps telling people, don't proclaim me. Don't go out and tell everybody. Well, he's already got great crowds following him. And one of the accounts will tell us that they would have forced him to become king. Jesus wants to tone that down. Now, verse 27 and, and following, actually the rest of chapter 8 could be divided into three parts. Verses 27 through 29 are going to have a couple of important questions and answers. Verses 31 and through 33 are going to have two rebukes. And then 34 through 38 are going to talk about the way of true or real discipleship. Verse 27, 28, Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi. If you've got that map in the back of your Bible, you'll notice that the Sea of Galilee, you have to go north to get to Caesarea Philippi. And incidentally, that is the furthest north that Jesus went during his recorded ministry. Never went further than that. Um, and, and there must have been a good reason for that. Maybe to, to get the disciples away. Maybe to have more opportunity to teach them. Maybe for some rest. We don't know for sure. But he goes up there into that area. And as he's going, he asks his disciples this question. Who do men say that I am? And they answered correctly in regard to the question that he asked. What are people saying about me? Well, some are saying John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others one of the prophets. I don't know if, uh, I, I don't know for sure that that means you're John the Baptist reincarnated. Jews didn't believe in reincarnation generally. Or Elijah, they might have meant someone that's the same as John, someone that's the same as Elijah, or perhaps just one of the prophets. Whatever that meant, Jesus then makes the question more personal. But who do you say that I am? And incidentally, in the original language, but you, but you, who do you say that I am? It would be the correct translation. Peter answered immediately and said to him, you are the Christ. Incidentally, as you know, Matthew 16 gives us additional details about the Lord's response to him 
and what he promised him that he would be able to do to have the keys of the kingdom which he would use on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 to preach the first sermon into which people would come as a part of the Lord's church eventually. Okay, you are the Christ. Then he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. Um, that, again, you're going to have to going to have to wait a little bit, and they would do that after uh, his resurrection. But uh, he wants them now not to to simply go out and, and start proclaiming all of that. Strictly warn them that they should tell no one about him. Now, verses 31 through 33, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Um, they, they must have been shocked to hear this. You are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus acknowledged that, said that it was correct, and yet now he's saying the, the priest, chief priests are going to uh, put me to death or cause me to be put to death, but I'm going to rise again from the dead. They're not only going to have to believe that he's going to be taken and killed, but they're going to have to believe now that once he's killed, he's going to come from the dead. Notice verse 32, he spoke the word openly, that is, made everybody hear it. And then Peter thinks that he's got a job to do. So he takes Jesus aside, and give him at least that much credit, and he began to rebuke him. He began to rebuke him. Um, Mark does not tell us what was involved in the rebuke. Matthew does. Verse, Matthew 16.22 says, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. And there have been people who have said that what Peter is saying is, Jesus, you're mistaken. That's not going to happen to you. And, and I, I don't know why you think it's going to happen to you. I believe it could mean we won't let it happen. We're not going to let that happen to you. And so get that out of your head that they're going to take you because we're going to protect you. And incidentally, that would be Peter's mentality. If I've got to take a sword and fight my way through all these people, I'll do it. They're not going to get you. Peter didn't understand. For verse 33 says, when he, Jesus, had turned around and looked at the disciples. Now, he knows, even though Peter has taken him aside, Jesus knows that they are seeing this. And so he rebukes Peter and says, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of man. You, you are filling the place of the devil. Just like he tempted me after my baptism and tried to thwart me from my real purpose, you are doing the same thing by telling me, That's not going to happen to you. When he had called the disciples to himself and his, the, the people to himself and the disciples, he says to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself. And, and we've talked maybe more about this than a lot of other things. 
not deny something from yourself, deny yourself. Say no to yourself. Take up your cross, which is not just a piece of jewelry. It is an instrument of death. If you're not willing to die for me and to follow me, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it. That, that doesn't mean to lose it in death necessarily, although some would, but you have to be willing to give up your life. Whoever loses his life for me, whoever gives it up for my sake and the Gospels will save it. A paradox. You try to hold on to your life and you lose it. You try to give your life and you save it. Verse 36, for what will it profit a man if he gains a whole world and loses his own soul? We live in a society that is money conscious, materialistic, and yet many people are spiritually starving. They have plenty to eat, but they're starving spiritually. What will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man, also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. The idea of universal salvation is a sham. It's a sham. There are people who would like to believe everybody's going to be saved. Well, maybe not Hitler, but everybody else is going to be saved. And Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me, I will be ashamed of you. I can't believe anybody would say, the Lord is ashamed of me, but I'm going to be saved. Not going to happen. Okay, then you get to chapter 9. It is not on the outline, but verse 1 is very important. He said to them, assuredly I say to you that there are some standing here. Now remember, he had called the people and his disciples, so they're all together. Some of you standing here who will not taste death till you see the kingdom of God present here with power. This, of course, one of the reasons it's important is it destroys the mistaken notion that Jesus failed to set up his kingdom. Denominationalists teach that Jesus didn't succeed and what he really had to do was set up the church until he returns to set up his kingdom. That's where all that business comes from about Jerusalem and, and a thousand years and all the other things. That's all manufactured to try to teach the idea that the kingdom is not in the reality yet. It is. It was established in the second chapter of Acts on the day of Pentecost just as Daniel had prophesied in Daniel 2 that it would be set up. Okay. Um, I'm going to go back just a moment because I forgot this and like a lot of other things. But, you know, when, when Jesus rebuked Peter, it's not going to happen to you, Lord. Th that was not excusable. Jesus did not say, Peter, thank you for wanting to have my back and protect me. It wasn't excusable because God had his purpose. And I don't think we normally think in these terms many times because we don't talk a whole lot about it. But you remember in John 1.29 what John the Baptist says? Behold what? Behold the Lamb of God 
who takes away the sins of the world. How could a lamb take away sins? Had to be sacrificed. So, so from the very beginning, even before Jesus gets into his ministry completely, John is telling people, here is God's sacrifice. This is not just, here's a pretty little lamb. Here's God's sacrifice. And Peter's saying, no, Lord, you're not going to be the lamb of God. I'm like, we're not going to let you. There could have been some materialistic thinking on the part of the disciples, even at this point. They were Jews, after all, and Jews were looking for a coming king who would take them away from the oppression of the Roman government. Okay. Verses 2 through 13 of chapter 9 is the transfiguration and its aftermath. Most of us are more familiar with Matthew 17. Jesus takes three of the apostles. I remember I told you that some things are not told us and we don't know why. Why didn't he take the rest of them? We don't know, but he took three of them. And he is transfigured. He is changed before them. And verse 3 shows how his clothes became shining, and incidentally, Mark uses an exclusive term, exceedingly white, uh, splendidly white, like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And, in addition to that transfiguration of the Lord, Elijah and Moses appear, and they were talking with Jesus. Incidentally, this is not just a mental idea, he, they see Elijah and Moses. And that, that also brings up questions. Uh, but it also brings up some other. First of all, why Moses and Elijah? Law and the prophets. Moses, the lawgiver. Elijah represents the prophets. And what God is going to say when Peter says, let's build three tents to honor the three of you. And God says, hear my son. That is the same as saying, don't just pay attention to Moses. Don't just pay attention to Elijah. You pay attention to Jesus. Well, here's a question we don't know. How were they recognized? And have any photographs, did they? Somehow God enabled them to know that it was Moses and Elijah who were there with Jesus and they were talking to him. About what? Well, look at Luke 9. Look at Luke's account. Luke 9 and verse 31. Who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Moses and Elijah were talking to Jesus about his death at Jerusalem. And and and, Moses, and and Peter just can't contain himself. Lord, this is such a wonderful occasion. We we need to do something about it. Uh, we we need to you know find some way to honor all of you. If you look at uh, what the text says in verse six, because he did not know what to say. How many times that happened to most of us? You say something because you don't know what to say. They were greatly afraid. Cloud came and overshadowed them. A voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved son. Hear him. Suddenly, the others are gone. 
and there's only Jesus. I would imagine that on those three disciples, that was a lasting, a very lasting experience. And one of the reasons I know that's true, I want you to see it, 2 Peter 1. 2 Peter 1. Verses 16 and 17. Peter says, We did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter says, God gave him the glory, and we heard it. Now, again, verse 8, verse 9, come down from the mountain, he commanded them, they should tell no one, till they had seen the Son of Man risen from the dead. And, of course, that's what they did. They kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. Um, there, there seems to have been a vague understanding of man living again. You know, you, you've heard people talk about what Job said, but evidently it wasn't clear because they didn't really understand and, and so maybe in this connection, verse 11, they say, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? In other words, if you're going to arise from the dead, what about Elijah coming? Because Elijah is supposed to precede something. And Jesus tells them Elijah has come. <laughs> and of course, who he had reference to was John the Baptist. He was the Elijah who had been promised in Malachi and other places. Now, verses 14 through 15, we're going to run out of time. There are a lot of other events in the rest of the chapter. In verses 14 through 29, the disciples failed to heal a boy, and Jesus succeeded where they failed. Um, that has puzzled many people. In verse 29, Jesus says to them when they ask, why couldn't we cast this demon out? And Jesus says, this this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. And, and I, I, I have to admit to you, I don't know exactly what all that entails. It seems to indicate, when he says this kind, meaning there would be more difficult uh, expulsions of demons than other, in some cases than in others. But it could also mean that they were thinking too much about their ability and not calling on God enough to accomplish what needed to be accomplished. It doesn't seem to be a strong rebuke. But then when you get to verse 30, they departed from their past through Galilee, traveling again, and he did not want anyone to know it. For he taught the disciples and said to them, Son of man, now notice, this is going to be the first time that Jesus is going to add this additional thought. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and after he is killed, he will rise the third day. 
you wonder what kind of curiosity that created about betrayal. Who's going to betray him? But notice verse 32. Couldn't have been much concern because they didn't understand it and they were afraid to ask. <laughs> they didn't know what he was really talking about, but they weren't going to ask. Then verse 33, they come to Capernaum. He's in the house with them. And incidentally, several times he's in Capernaum in a house. And he said, what, what were you arguing about on the way? He knew what had happened. They kept silent on the road because they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. Maybe they're thinking this. Well, if he's going to die, that's going to just leave us. One of us has to be chief, don't we? Maybe it'll be me. Incidentally, who would be the greatest? I, I don't believe for a moment that Peter was saying, well, I think John's going to be the greatest. And that John was saying, well, I think Peter's going to be the greatest. I don't believe that's the case. I think they were thinking about, maybe I'm going to be the greatest. Because he sits them down. He sat down, called the twelve, said to them, if anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. You've got it backward. You think to be great, you have to try to be number one. You really have to be a servant. And to illustrate that, he takes a little child, puts that child in the midst. Notice, isn't this interesting, verse 36, when he had taken him in his arms, he didn't say, look, here's a kid. I'll give you an illustration of this kid. Takes him in his arms. And he says, whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. That brought up a question because John said, teacher, we saw someone who wasn't following us, notice us, casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow us. I think those Words, us and you, are important. Jesus said, Do not forbid him, for no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterward speak evil of me, for he who is not against me is on our side. Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Incidentally, and we're out of time, but let me just say this, and I don't have time to amplify this. Maybe I can talk a little bit about this next week, but this does not mean what some people think it means, that everybody who does something good is approved by God completely. doesn't mean that, because that negates a lot of other truth if that's the case. If giving a cup of cold water is all that it takes what happens to the other things that God requires of us? Thanks for being here tonight.